From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. 15 minutes after 12, I'm Rob Faye. Welcome back. Some would say quarter after 12. 15 minutes after 12, regardless. And uh, you know what? Every once in a while, Twitter can be a cesspool. I, well, not every once in a while. It is more than it isn't. But uh, I was really taken aback by this the other day uh, when Bowen Ma actually just started her tweet with a sigh and went on to say that she will not apologize for feeding her three-month-old child when she is hungry. And uh, I thought, boy, I can't believe that in 2024 we're still having these conversations about breastfeeding in public places and at work. And uh, But we are still having those conversations. Bowen is kind enough to join me Bowen good afternoon have we got her we got Bowen Bowen how are you doing yeah. today there we go sorry oh, sorry there's three it there's three buttons <laughs> there's three buttons I usually pick the wrong one um, no problem you know first and foremost I just want to say I'm sorry that we're even having this conversation but I do think it brings up a part of a bigger discussion regarding breastfeeding in public places first and foremost I would assume that you feel comfortable bringing your daughter to work. I mean, have there ever been any feedback aside from what you've gotten online? Oh, you know, the response to me continuing my service as an MLA and a minister while also being a new mom has been overwhelmingly positive, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, Of course, there are still some out there who will criticize me for this decision, and it honestly makes me reflect on how women with all kinds of occupations face criticisms for the choices that they make as mothers, whether they choose to return to their professions or or chart a different path. There are always those who will judge. We had some people that text in before and they said, make sure that you ask her if there is a a designated place for breastfeeding within the legislature. Can you paint a picture of the ledge? Is there a a designated spot or is it just you go and and, and find your privacy or you just do it wherever you want to do it? Well, I mean, I guess I would say that uh, certainly there are nooks and crannies that we can always find uh, to to breastfeed. If you have an office that's not being used, uh, we can certainly breastfeed there. Uh, but I think people need to keep in mind that uh, breastfeeding is, is actually a protected right here in British Columbia, mm-hmm. whether a woman is, is covered or not. Um, it is unlawful to discriminate against somebody for breastfeeding. Uh, in the case that I, that I shared on, on Twitter, I was presenting in front of a group of interns coming up from Washington State. Um, I had just come out of a series of meetings. I was heading into a series of meetings after that presentation as well. And baby Azalea was, she was hungry. She doesn't take the bottle well. She's only three months old, so we can't replace breast milk with, uh, uh, with solid foods. And so, you know what? I did what I believe any mother in my situation would have done. I, I fed her. Mm-hmm. And I I doubt anybody in that group that you were speaking to had any issue with it. And that's sometimes the trouble of social media with the anonymity factor is people will just bring up the worst case scenario and then you've got to go in there and defend yourself. Let's pull the lens back a little bit, Bowen, and talk about just bringing your child to work as a whole. People sometimes assume that if you're an executive or in your case, you know, a member of parliament, that that is uh, just a no-no. But I would assume that it it doesn't matter whether you're working at a regular nine-to-five job or you're working for the Canadian people, that you should have those same rights? You know, I I do want to recognize that I am incredibly fortunate to benefit from conditions that have allowed me to carry on this work. I have a husband who is willing to be a devoted full-time father, a premier, colleagues and staff who support me in carrying on in my duties, and a community that recognizes the democratic value of having the voices of women, including mothers of young children, represented in the legislature. 
I, I mean, every family makes choices about how to make things work for their families. And that's why our work to deliver universal childcare is so important to provide families with affordable, accessible, safe choices for childcare so that they have greater flexibility in how they make their lives work. It's incredibly vital to empowering parents, particularly women. I I think about the visibility factor, and I think that's the only thing that as a society we're still struggling with. I mean, I don't think anybody doesn't want you to feed your child, but I think the argument will forever be, and maybe this is a generational thing, is that if you're going to do it, do it in private, uh, in a private confine or go around to one of those quote unquote nooks and crannies. But I I think there's a lot of women out there that are going to stand their ground and say, like, I don't have to. If I do, it's going to be my choice to do so. It's not necessarily going to be because it makes you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, and and again, breastfeeding is a protected right here in British Columbia. Uh, any woman who uh, or mother who requires to uh, is finds herself in in a situation where they need to breastfeed her child is is able to do so, uh, and I think that's incredibly important. I mean, uh, this is a conversation that I I think we settled quite a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also acknowledge that there are some folks who who may have different opinions. They are entitled to their opinion, but I will not apologize for feeding my child when she's hungry. Bowen Maz, MLA for North Vancouver and Lonsdale. She's also the Minister of Emergency Management and Climate Readiness here on the Jill Bennett Show. Bowen, uh, let's paint a picture for everybody. I mean, you've got a new child, uh, just a couple of months old, uh, bringing her to the legislature. You've talked about the fact that she's been welcomed with open arms from everybody across the board. But take me through the day-to-day. Like, I mean, uh, located in a playpen, does she take you away? Do you ever find yourself distracted? Or is this something that doesn't uh, impede your job on any level. Yeah, isn't it interesting that men never get questioned on how they'll be able to work when they have a new baby, Bingo. Uh, when the new baby enters their lives, because everyone assumes that his spouse is taking care of everything. And yet there are some who lack the imagination to consider that a similar arrangement might be possible for women. So for my family, my husband supports my daughter and I as a full-time dad. But yes, she is also very young. She's only three months old, too young for solid food, doesn't take the bottle well. So I do keep her close by and breastfeed her when she's hungry. My husband and and my daughter right now are outside my my office. Uh, He stays with her all day when we're here in this building. Um, I, I don't pretend that it's uh, that it's easy though uh, certainly I expect that I will show up to more than one meeting with spit up in my hair and a <laughs> saliva stain on my shoulder we all have uh, by the way yeah. <laughs> all parents have yeah and you know th- this is the this is I guess uh, this is what we'll do um, this is how I'm going to try to make this work because it, you know women in politics really can't win on this Right. The, the nature of elected office and ministerial appointments, it adds further complications. Uh, we have long work days, a lot of travel. It's not possible for me to tap in somebody else to represent my community during an extended absence without forcing a by-election. If I took a year off for leave, I would be depriving my community of democratic representation for a quarter of the term. And I have no doubt that people would have a lot to say about that, too. And so I'm trying to make it work. And yes, some will accuse me of being unserious about my work or uh, unserious about being a mother, uh, most likely both. <laughs> but my community is full of people who understand the value 
of having women's voices in the legislature, and I've been incredibly grateful for all of their support. Well, I used to change my daughter's diaper at Nat Bailey Stadium in between innings during a broadcast, so I can relate to bringing a child into the workplace and having to make do with multiple tasks. But I'm A, I'm glad that you tweeted it the way that you did, but more than anything, I really appreciate you coming onto the show because I think there's a lot of people out there, both men and women, who are kind of nervous to maybe take their child into the workplace. So I think the way that you've explained it over the last segment has kind of at least re- open the conversation and hopefully more people will take advantage of that opportunity. Bowen, thank you for your time today. I really, I know you've talked about this lots over the last couple of days, but thank you for making time for me this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Fane for Jill. I'll be here today and tomorrow, and then Jill will be back in the big chair next Monday. Um, you know, the unveiling of this national pharmacare plan that will cover diabetes, contraceptions, that's just a start. It's obviously good news. There's a few hurdles that they still got to overcome, but this uh, a big announcement today brings the NDP and the Liberals in lockstep before the cameras talking about how this is going to benefit Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Talk a little bit more about this. Steve Morgan, who's an economist and professor of health policy out at the University of British Columbia, kind enough to join me. Steve, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, it's my pleasure. And let's get right into it. What were your first takeaways from this unveiling? Uh, You know, I think this is one of those rare times when you really can say this is a historic day. Um, This is obviously just a proof of concept about what a national pharmacare program can do, because it's only going to start with a couple of important drug classes, but just two of them. Um, but it is a, a really positive sign that the uh, Liberals and the, and the NDP have worked together to to really start the, the program, get this uh, uh, really legacy building uh, initiative going. Um, and now, in some sense, the hard work begins of, of making sure that, that the promise of this kind of policy can be fulfilled. I think one of the first questions that a naysayer would have was, cool, sounds great, but how much is this going to cost? Do you think we'll eventually get that number? Well, I think the first thing to recognize is that Canadians are already grossly overpaying for medicines because we use a ridiculously inefficient and almost powerless system of private and public uh, insurance to purchase medicines on the world market for pharmaceuticals. So you're already spending more than this program will cost government to run. Um, it's I've heard just even from the uh, some reporting today that this first step towards the National Pharmacare Program will probably involve an increase in, a, in approximately $1 billion of public spending. But for every one of those dollars, Canadians will receive more than a dollar back in terms of reduced out-of-pocket costs, or reduced costs of the private insurance that you're currently paying for if you have work-related drug coverage. So another person will say, well, this is great, and I know that they wanted to get this in because you look at the polls right now, and the Conservatives are uh, comfortably ahead, double-digit numbers at this point. Pierre Poiliev has not come forward saying whether or not he would uh, continue this program, whether he would cut this program. Is this something where we can get excited, but we've also got to be weary of the poll numbers? Yeah, I think that it, it, there's a threat that the Conservatives, if they should win the next election, which now sounds like it'll be uh, a little further off in the future because of the Liberals and NDP uh, fulfilling, in some sense, the requirements of that confidence and supply agreement they had. Uh, but there is a risk that the Conservatives might say that they're not interested in essentially having government run a program that would provide this kind of equity and access at lower costs uh, because perhaps they like systems that provide profits to the drug companies and insurers. But the key thing is, 
if the federal government can get these first categories of treatment covered and do so within the next year, Canadians are going to realize that it's a real value in terms of equity and access to medicines, but also significant reductions in the cost out of pocket and through really grossly inflated costs of private insurance for medicines. Steve Morgan, economist, professor of health policy out at UBC, joining us here on The Jill Bennett Show. Um, I like where they started, at least with what they came out publicly. They wanted to go after diabetes and they wanted to make sure uh, that there was um, birth control, which to me are two really noticeable things that need addressing here in Canada. Do you think that they came out with the right measurements first? Yeah, if you're going to start small, these are really important categories of treatment, both because of the populations that will be beneficiaries of access to these medicines, but also the symbolism. I mean, diabetes, you know, insulins, for instance, were discovered here in Canada, and uh, they are, uh, it's an embarrassment in some sense that a Canadian invention is not accessible to literally millions of Canadians that need these treatments. And so this kind of policy uh, fill, fulfills a symbolic and clinical need in terms of equity and access to that Canadian invention. And contraception makes absolutely perfect sense. British Columbia already has a program for universal coverage of comp- contraceptives. The BC government will benefit from some federal funding to support that initiative under this new program. And it will do a, a long go a long way in terms of reducing financial burdens, on uninsured young people and increasing women's control over their own reproductive reproductive choices. And I think that's a part of the conversation. I know that this is something that Justin Trudeau has been trying to push, but you think about the gender equity and and just the messaging that comes out. I mean, even something like a morning after pill seems to be like a, a step in the right direction and a message to the community that we have been listening yeah, and I think, I mean, I'm not a polit- political scientist and, or a politician, but I, I do think that these are wise choices going into the next federal election because these are the kinds of things that will significantly separate Polyev's version of a, of a conservative government from a liberal or NDP party's platforms. So, um, you know, clinically important, symbolically important, and, and probably plays well to the, the political angle here too. Well, I was going to say the timing of it comes at a very uh, strong time within a year of a potential election. So, you know, it's great insight. And uh, I really feel like you covered everything. (laughs) Just a couple of questions. Let's talk more. I think you're a guy that could cover a lot of ground with just a few short strokes. And uh, I hope our paths cross again. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Forty-seven minutes after twelve, I'm Rob Fain for Jill today and tomorrow. Well, Surrey Public School educators have taken four classic books from their recommended reading curriculum over concerns of racist content, and of the four books, one of them is To Kill a Mockingbird, which is a classic novel set back in the 30s down in Alabama. Uh, It's a story about a young girl named Scout uh, and her brother, who basically, through their father, who's a lawyer representing a black man who was falsely accused of rape, uh, experiences everything from prejudice, a little bit of compassion, destruction caused by ignorance. It's one of those books that if you're ever in school, uh, I, I remember Huck Finn having to read that one as well. Yes, society today might not be able to understand the language of what was going on more than 100 years ago, but it is still, in my estimation, a classic novel. So to talk more about this and maybe why the Surrey School Board decided to take this off the uh, curriculum, if you will, Caroline Elliott, she's a BC United candidate for West Van Cap Bolano. Caroline, good afternoon. 
Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for having me. And and I don't want to say it's because I'm long in the tooth, but I do see the value in having some of these classic novels at least available to me, which looks like it's still the case, but taken out of the curriculum. What are your thoughts on that? I completely agree with you. Um, I'm, I am I posted on X this morning. I'm, I'm truly uh, terrified of a future in which kids are no longer exposed to history's darker moments, whether it's through through fiction and in literature, as we're talking about now, or through history uh, classes or what have you, I, if, if, if our kids are to learn from the injustices of the past, and, and God knows there's many, many of them, uh, we can't sanitize those injustices. So when it comes to, to Kill a Mockingbird, which is what I posted about this morning, um, I think it, 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 it really does introduce kids to the ugliness of racial prejudice so that they can learn from it and be better than previous generations were having had that exposure to it. So I think uh, those folks who, who took that book out of the curriculum uh, and, and not just took it out of the curriculum um, uh, um, as it happens, uh, they're actually, it's become very difficult for teachers to actually order the books, even if they do want to share them with their mm-hmm. class. They're no longer available on that website. So that's an important point too. Uh, so I think that that really um, uh, takes away an opportunity for those kids to, to actually be exposed to that and to learn from it and, and, and to be uh, better people as a result. I remember asking my grade 11 uh, English teacher why we were doing Shakespeare, and I didn't understand it. I needed the Coles notes for those <laughs> who understand what those were. Uh, but I got through it, and, and there was logic into that in the fact that you had to learn other tongues. You had to learn uh, the way that things were written for different generations. And, you know, the spokesperson for the school district said that they're not banning the book from the classroom or the libraries. They're just no longer a part of the curriculum. But to me, the curriculum is where you can actually, instead of just leaving it on the shelf to interpretation, this is where you can actually explain it and get into the history and maybe use this as a springboard to a more in-depth, more relevant conversation to this day and age. Absolutely. I mean, it's there's, and you know, and, and to see the NDP Minister of Education say that she's confident in the judgment that's been used uh, in this case, I think she's absolutely wrong. Uh, BC United Kevin, uh, leader Kevin Falcon has has come out and said this is absolutely ridiculous. That book should, is an important part of, of, of what kids learn and how they learn about the past. I mean, of course, parts of it are very hard to read. It's, it's, it, it, it forces you to confront those really tough issues that, that, that existed in our past and to some extent today. Uh, but it's written in such an incredible way that I think it really seizes the attention of those young people in an, at an emotional level that it stays with them for, for years to come. Um, my sister's actually a high school teacher, and she told me when she's presented that book, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, to her students, there, it, it's just the, the, the ability of it to grasp their attention is unlike anything else. The room is dead quiet as they read it together. The pages are turning in perfect unison as they take in the story. Hmm. And, and, and it leads to, as she says, that incredibly, incredibly productive conversations, not just about the circumstances of the time, but about who's writing the story, who's centered in it, and how that might you know, affects not just how the story is told, but the history uh, itself and how that's told. So um, I think it's incredibly important that kids are exposed to that. I think uh, for the NDP Minister of Education to be defending the decision uh, is, is, is just not right. Uh, and I think Kevin Falcon is bang on in his assessment of it. Caroline Elliott is a BC United candidate for West Van Capilano, joining us here on the Jill Bennett Show. Um, let's talk demographics. And realistically, when you go into certain parts of this lower mainland, obviously, uh, if you go to Richmond, there's a high density Asian population. If you go into Surrey, there's an Indo Canadian population. If you go to North Van, there's an Iranian population. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that Surrey, in this instance, maybe just felt that the book didn't carry the same relevance? Like, for example, if this was a book about First Nations, for example, I would imagine that they wouldn't even think to take that 
that off of the shelves because of the uh, proximity to First Nations within our community. But maybe they don't think that this book strikes with a, a student in this region, if you will. Like to me, this still screams of Southern United States. And maybe they didn't think that that just fit the profile of their community. Um, I, I don't think that's why they do it. If you look at their um, the, the, the reason that they themselves stated, they said, the reason we've taken these novels, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird uh, was one of, of, I think, three. Uh, the reason that they, they don't have these novels available to students in the same way that they did anymore is because uh, they're worried about the trauma and harm it may cause to some students. So I don't think it's so much about the demographic uh, as much as it is about really um, just history having some incredibly uncomfortable stuff in it. And the fact that, that, that kids are, you know, made uncomfortable as a result when they read it. But I think that discomfort is exactly what we need to know about if we're going to really learn from the past and move on from it and, 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 and create a better society. So I think that's critical. And I think they're just so off base with this. Well, it is listed as the number two on a list of best 100 books for BC students curated by a staff at the Okanagan Regional Library. Only Mice and Men uh, was higher than To Kill a Mockingbird when it came to common standard and BC high school reading requirements. So that, to me, is eyebrow raising in the fact that this isn't just a book. This is one of the elite books that they have now taken out of the conversation. So, Caroline, final thoughts. What do you think? Do you think that maybe this gets enough um, attention that they circle back on this and say, yeah, maybe we need to put this back in the curriculum or is this where they're going to stand their ground and it's just going to be something that you're going to have to scout for on your own bookshelf? Well, I think, um, and, and since you meant, mentioned of Mice and Men, that uh, the top-ranking book has actually also been taken off the shelf as part of this endeavor. That's one of the other uh, two books, uh, in addition to, to Kill a Mockingbird. I don't see um, the NDP government stepping in on this. They seem to be defending the decision. I think it's really, really troubling. Uh, I think we have to, to put being just very real about what's happened in the past and how we can learn from it ahead of, of kind of the feelings we get when we, we read these things. Uh, it's critically important to truly understanding the past and, and moving on to a better future. Caroline, thank you for your insight today. I hope we cross paths again. Hope so too. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.